Cavs Warriors, Patriots Falcons, Ali Foreman. Some sports comeback stories are so enshrined in our collective consciousness that we need only say the names of the competitors. But what makes these stories so memorable, so important to the history of sports, is how improbable they were, how much they defied belief. These were the kind of stories that left people saying the words fairy tale or storybook ending. These are the stories that felt to us like just that, stories, fiction, the kind of stuff we make up to entertain ourselves. Because the real world is ruled by logic and probability. Luck and chance always fall victim to what gamblers refer to as the long run. There is no such thing as fortune or fate. Magic doesn't exist. There's perhaps no breed of gambler who sees the world this way more than the modern poker player. Those who learned the game in the internet age, who played tens of thousands of hands in the blink of an eye on dozens of digital tables on their computer screen, who have boiled the game down from a stew of psychology, performance, and calculated risk to a series of answerable questions solved by computers. Today's players are not romantics, and they don't believe in miracles. That is, they didn't until the year 2020, the year they all sat in front of their computer screens and bore witness to a miracle right before their very eyes. This is the story of that miracle and the story of the poker player who performed it. It's the story of a college dropout who used a single $100 deposit on an online poker site to win millions and millions of dollars. The story of a man who mastered poker then taught his secrets to hundreds of younger players, only to watch those students leave him in their dust and reinvent the game in the process. And it's the story of a man who comes back from retirement, relearned the game he once mastered, and gave himself one last shot to reach the top. A shot that would require a miracle. This is the story of Phil Galfond. From the Ringer Podcast Network, My name is David Hill, and this is Gamblers. Gamblers is brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook the official sports betting partner of the Ringer Podcast Network. Looking for a better way to bet on your favorite sports online? With FanDuel Sportsbook, there are more ways to bet. If you can dream it, you can probably bet it through FanDuel Sportsbook. FanDuel offers spreads, parlays, money lines, over-under, props, and in-game bets all in an easy-to-use app. Also, there are more ways to cash out. When you win, you can receive your winnings in your bank account in as little as 48 hours through a safe and secure process. Check out FanDuel Sportsbook app today to experience sports betting the way it always should have been. FanDuel, more ways to win. Must be 21 plus and present in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Indiana, or Colorado. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In Indiana, call 1-800-9-WITH-IT or in Colorado, call 1-800-522-4700. Phil Galfond grew up in Rockville, Maryland, 
an upper-middle-class suburb of Washington, D.C., in the 1990s. He was the son of a school teacher and a statistician, the oldest of three, a well-behaved kid who always followed the rules and tried to please his folks. I was a kid who tested well and uh, didn't do my homework, essentially. Just skating by was easy enough. To him, high school was a cinch. Like, I didn't feel like going to college. Um, I remember my mom filled out my college applications because I just didn't care to. So I didn't think very much about the future. Phil went to the University of Wisconsin in Madison, where he studied philosophy. And while it may seem like philosophy is an unusual discipline for a future professional gambler, it isn't that far off the mark. I should know, I studied philosophy too, and my logic classes felt a lot like math. I feel like philosophy taught me less about the meaning of life than how to be good at meaningless games. We learned how to boil any question, even one that seemed like it couldn't be answered, down to its essence, and treated it like a math problem with a definitive solution. It was a lot like solving a puzzle, and it was fun. I think it's well said that it is like a game where there are clear rules. That's like the part of games that I like that, you know, there's a clear set of rules and you show up and you, within that framework, do the best you can. There's like a fairness to it. Phil was drawn to games, particularly games you can gamble on. He started gambling on cards in high school and carried that hobby with him to Madison. Only in college, he wasn't playing stud for lunch money. This was 2003. And poker was no longer a kitchen table card game. Poker was everywhere. Every May in Las Vegas, the world's best poker players pay up to $10,000 of their own money to compete in the ultimate card game, the World Series of Poker. Amazing. Phil Ivey loses with a full house to a better full house of Chris Moneymaker. The queen of clubs will end the night. The entire poker world calling for a deuce. No ace, no king, no ten, no seven. It's a brick! It's a brick! Vicky Corrin has done it! I did watch it on TV, but didn't think much of it until um, a friend of mine from that group of friends that I grew up with reached out and said, you know, I picked up some books on how to play poker and I've been taken kind of seriously and uh, I just won like a big tournament recently for $30,000. I think you'd be really good at it. Poker is one of the oldest gambling games we have. We can trace its roots back to the 17th century. But online poker was less than a decade old. And the game was unlike the poker of even the recent past. For example, if an 18-year-old Phil were to walk into one of the few Las Vegas casinos that had poker rooms back in 2003, he would have had his option between one of maybe uh, half a dozen games going on, mostly limit hold'em and stud. But online, he had a smorgasbord of options to choose from, 24 hours a day. And the game he chose to play with his first $50 deposit was a 10-person freeze-out where everyone played until only one person was left with any chips. They were called sit-and-goes. The action seemed fast and decisive, so he entered one for $10. Five sit-and-goes later, Phil was busted. So I was trying to learn at the same time as playing, but I, I didn't really know very much yet. I lost that $50 and I think deposited $100. After that $100 deposit, Phil Galfon never had to deposit money on a poker site ever again. 
By the end of Phil's second year in college, he was playing four $100 sit-and-goes at a time every 20 minutes. That's $1,200 every hour that Phil was spending on buy-ins to these games. And he's still a sophomore in college without a job. He had boiled poker down to its essence and figured out how to consistently win. Phil developed a reputation among the community of people who posted on the internet poker forum 2 plus 2 as a winning sit-and-go specialist. And he was giving with advice. So he was considered more than just a winner. He was a true mensch. Sometimes Phil would take a shot and play in the $1,000 sit-and-goes, the biggest stakes available. And his friends would railbird him and cheer him on. He was becoming a big fish in what was then a very small pond. He had built his $100 deposit into $100,000. Then, in January of his junior year, something important happened that would allow Phil to take his poker career to the next level. He turned 21. I aspired to have some kind of glory or recognition. And so I wanted to play these tournaments and hope that I could make it on a final table on, on TV. And so I remember sitting down and saying, okay, well, if I play this many hours every week, then, then every couple months I can go play one of these tournaments. And, you know, if I lose, then that's okay. I come, I rebuild. So Phil skipped the first week of classes the next semester and flew to Tunica, Mississippi to play in a World Poker Tour event. He didn't win, but he won enough to break even on his trip. And so it was back to Wisconsin, to the life of a philosophy scholar. I thought I would go back and, um, you know, talk to my professors about what I'd missed and you know, just continue on. But when I got back, I, I didn't feel like doing that. Um, and so I said, you know what, let's take a semester off and see what I can do with poker. Phil paid a coach $100 an hour to teach him the ins and outs of the life of a pro. And then he broke the news to his parents. I remember telling my parents that I was going pro. I mean, to my dad, I kind of showed him my database, you know, tracking all my results and explaining this is the hand sample I have. I've been doing well for this long and I can be confident in it. I'm making whatever an hour. And so I think I can do this. Um, and it wasn't until many years later that I found out that my mom was actually really upset about it, but just didn't let me know, which I appreciate very much. <laughs> Phil started his professional career off by moving into a rented house in Las Vegas with 10 other young pros he met online. They'd all been making a killing playing on the internet, and they went to Vegas that summer to take a shot at making a big score at the World Series of Poker. Phil Galfon was ready for the world to know his name. He wanted to take on the best players in the world. And he did. And he lost. A lot. I probably went into the summer with 125,000. Lost half of that during the summer. His coach, Tommy Angelo, had prepared him for swings like this. He went back to Wisconsin undiscouraged and doubled down by dropping out of school. He set himself to rebuilding his bankroll one step at a time, playing a little, winning a little, moving up in stakes, and anytime he suffered a loss, moving back down until he won the money back, rinse and repeat. By the time the next summer rolled around and he showed back up to Las Vegas for the 2007 World Series, he had built his bankroll back up to nearly a million dollars and was a regular in the 100-200 No Limit Hold'em games online. Still, despite his progress and success, when he got to Vegas, he wasn't the biggest winner among his group of friends. That title belonged to a 21-year-old newcomer named Tom Dwan, who was already playing in the highest stakes games available, 
as high as 300, 600. We all obviously looked up to Tom. He was the face of this whole group that you were part of. But, you know, I used to go to the World Series of Poker every year from like the year 2000 on. And I remember seeing this change happen in real time each summer when I'd go out there. Could you feel that as a 22-year-old in Las Vegas, you know, with groups of other young players? Could you feel that you guys were a bit like crashing the party or whatever, or that you were part of this sea change? Yeah, definitely. It wasn't contempt and it wasn't exactly disrespect, but like a mutual disrespect for each other's uh, games between the, the kind of the old guard and, and the, the young guns. They thought that we were playing badly. We thought they were playing badly. And I think for a lot of us, there was a little bit of a chip on our shoulder because you have these players playing on TV, getting really famous. And so I think, you know, the online generation, the young generation for a little while was jealous of the the old school players who were getting so much recognition that we felt we deserved. We were wild and reckless. Phil didn't win any titles that year, but he didn't lose half his bankroll either. He was feeling more and more confident in his abilities to make it as a pro. He spent the next year trying his hand at the stakes his friend Tom was playing. Stakes that were so high, sometimes the only player he could get a game with would be Phil Ivey himself. It's funny looking back because the first time I ever played 300-600, I decided I was ready to take a shot. And I just go look in the full tilt lobby. And there's Phil Ivey sitting at 300-600. And he's the only one there. So I just go sit with him. And this is really funny looking back because now you think of, you know, is this game good for me? Am I a favorite in this game? Should I be playing this game? But back then it really was like a video game. And I was like, okay, I th- I've beat the 200-400 level. I'm going to go play the 300-600 level. And I wasn't worried that the probably single most successful player at the time was sitting there. I was just like, okay, I'm going to try this level. Um, and I remember sitting down with him and, and uh, within three hands, I had lost my 60,000 and uh, <laughs> decided it, it had happened so quickly that I just decided to, to give up and move back down, not try for more. Phil's friend Tom Dwan had moved on from playing in these nosebleed stakes, no limit hold'em games to playing a poker variant called Pot Limit Omaha. Now I'm going to assume you already know how to play no limit Texas hold'em since that's the game you see most often on television. And I'm also going to assume that you don't know how to play Pot Limit Omaha. It isn't as popular among the masses, but I still remember when hold'em played second fiddle to stud. These things come in and out of style. Omaha is a lot like hold'em, except you play with four cards instead of two and you have to use exactly two of your cards. Despite the name, the game doesn't come from Omaha. In fact, it started in Detroit as a game called Twice Three. It spread around the country under different names. Oklahoma 2x4, Fort Worth, Nine Card, or just Ha. I'm from the South, and I cut my teeth playing Pot Limit Omaha in the back of barbecue restaurants or vending machine warehouses from Louisiana to North Carolina. It was the most popular game in the South for a long time, because it was what we called an action game. Because you got so many cards, Omaha was good for getting people to gamble it up and play big pots. Phil noticed that Tom Dwan was crushing the Pot Limit Omaha games, and he wanted to learn how to play. And Tom just said, oh, if you want to just watch me play, come over, you can ask questions. And so I did. I went to his hotel room and was watching him play and asked some questions. In those days, there were so many people playing poker on the internet, and a lot of them were not very thoughtful players. 
Back then, Pot Limit Omaha was largely unexplored. Phil didn't need to learn a lot of advanced strategies in the beginning. He just needed to avoid making as many simple mistakes as every other player. It was that easy. Play tight, don't fuck up, and people will eventually give you their money. I was pretty good at PLO by the time we went into the World Series in uh, 2008. But yeah, I found myself with a lot of chips late into the tournament. And there are not many hands that I remember from tournaments, you know, over a decade ago. There were maybe 25 players left. And I was probably like 10th in chips. And I played a pot against Daniel Negreanu, who's one of the most well-known poker players uh, in the world. It was memorable because I had like the worst hand he could have run into because his two pair were no good. Phil made a pretty crazy move on Daniel and he won the pot. Daniel was impressed. He asked Phil to explain why he played the hand in such a strange way. So Phil told him. And I remember that the next day he had made a vlog, YouTube video about the day. He was still in the tournament and he made this video. He talked about some of the hands he played and then he said uh, something along the lines of, I play this pot against this guy, Phil Galfond. And I asked Phil after, you know, why did you check? Like when you have all the kings, do you expect me to bet? And I guess I do remember what I said, which is that I did not expect him to bet actually. But if he does bet, great, I can get all the money in. The point here is that Phil played a pot against perhaps the most famous, most successful poker player in the world, and not only beat him, but beat him using a play that he had come up with all on his own. Not from reading in a book or on some online forum or training video or coaching session. This was a play that Phil had dreamed up, and the best player in the world was saying it was a brilliant insight. This alone would have been enough to pump up Phil's confidence. But if it didn't do the trick... What came next surely would. I went to the final table. It was one of the most uh, star-studded final tables, definitely that I've ever played, but that I've seen as well. Lots of the legends were there. Uh, Johnny Chan, Phil Helmuth, Daniel Negreanu, Brian Rast, David Benjamin. One by one, Phil took them all down. 23-year-old Phil Galfon took on one of the strongest final tables in poker history, in a game he'd only relatively recently even learned to play, and he won his first World Series of Poker Championship bracelet. It was a surreal feeling because it's kind of the thing that I wanted to do in poker was win a bracelet. And it just felt great and and surreal. And all my friends were there watching uh, the final table, supporting me. They all wanted to go out and party. I don't don't like to do that, so I just went home. So the 2008 World Series of Poker $5,000 Pot Limit Omaha champion took his $800,000 in winnings, packed up his place in Madison, and he moved to where any self-respecting young wealthy person wants to be. The greatest place in the entire world. New York City. So I actually went from, you know, probably before moving to New York in 2008, the most expensive thing I ever bought was like an $800 TV. And then uh, I moved to New York and bought a condo, uh, which, which is obviously a little more. He didn't just buy one apartment. He bought two, right on top of one another. Then he connected them with a slide. Phil had it all. Lots of money, lots of friends, a slide in his apartment. And he was playing online every day and still crushing the games and making tons of money. 
He'd spend his summers in Las Vegas and the rest of the year in his place in New York. And for a couple of years, it seemed like he was set for life, living the dreams, everything coming up aces. What could possibly go wrong? April 15th, 2011. Poker players called it Black Friday. The Department of Justice shut down all online poker sites in the United States, locking players out of their accounts and seizing U.S. assets of the companies for violation of the Unlawful Internet Gambling Enforcement Act. Last week, the Obama Justice Department led a massive crackdown on online poker sites. I was playing on Full Tilt. You go to Full Tilt's website and it says, you know, seized by the Department of Justice or something like that. And I didn't really understand the gravity of it. Ironically, Phil had just lost a million dollars before the shutdown occurred, so he only lost about 400000 in the seizure. But it was more than just the money that he had on deposit. Without access to online poker games, Phil didn't have any way to make money. Online poker was his job. Some players tried their hand at playing live poker in casinos. Some gave up the game entirely. Phil did something else. He sold the apartment and the slide, and he moved to Canada, where playing poker on the internet was still legal. And was it true that the games contracted and that there was less money? Yeah, that definitely was true. I mean, the I don't actually know the exact figures, but I think the U.S. was maybe half of the global market. So losing the U.S. as players was, was massive. Without the U.S. market, there were far fewer games online, and the stakes were much lower. Phil had to play for half the stakes he was used to playing which meant he was earning half as much money. But he soldiered on, hoping that the situation wouldn't be permanent and that there'd be some sort of legal or legislative fix to the situation in the States. The fix never came. More after this. Add a little excitement to your sports-watching experience by betting on all the action on FanDuel Sportsbook this football season. There's a reason why FanDuel is America's number one sportsbook. Their app is simple to use. They've got great odds on all different betting markets, unique, fun bet types like same game parlay and exclusive always on promotions to let you get more action out of every game day. And if you win, they even get you your winnings safely in as little as 24 hours. Right now, FanDuel is letting you place your first bet risk-free up to $1,000. Just place a bet on any game and FanDuel will refund you up to $1,000 back if you don't win your first bet. Seriously, there's no strings attached. Just place any bet you want. If you win, you keep the cash. If you lose, you'll get your entire bet up to $1,000 back in site credit. This weekend is Anthony Joshua's big comeback fight after about a year out of the ring. And I'm sure he's going to win. But he's a huge favorite. Right now he's minus 1,300 to win, and I'm not trying to fade that. But on FanDuel, if I can nail down what round Joshua wins, I can get a better price. And I think he might go into later rounds and milk this fight for all the practice he can get, So I'm taking Joshua in rounds 10 through 12 at plus 700. Also, don't forget to check out FanDuel's same game parlays as well. If you've never tried FanDuel Sportsbook, what are you waiting for? Download the FanDuel Sportsbook app to get started and be sure to sign up with promo code GAMBLERS so they know I sent you. That's FanDuel Sportsbook promo code GAMBLERS. Must be 21 plus and present in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, West Virginia, Indiana, Colorado, Iowa, Tennessee. First online real money wager only. Site credit is non-withdrawable and expires in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See sportsbook.fanduel.com for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado, 
1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-GAMBLER in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Illinois, Tennessee Red Line 1-800-889-9789 in Tennessee, or visit www.1800gambler.net in West Virginia. By the end of 2012, Phil decided to try something new. As the saying goes, those that can, do. Those that can't, teach. And for the time being, anyway, Phil couldn't do. So he started a company with a friend called Run It Once, where they would offer to train other poker players for a fee. Poker was getting tougher to beat. Black Friday meant that there wasn't a lot of easy money left in the games. And technology was making it easier for players to play huge volumes of hands and build massive databases of information to analyze. In short, the good players were getting better and the bad players were going broke. Coaching sites were in high demand by players who were trying to keep up. I never intended it to be this way, but it just started taking up a lot of my time. And and before I knew it, I was basically full-time working on the business. And poker had taken a back seat. Around this time, Phil met Farrah Fath, who played Mimi Lockhart on Days of Our Lives. Farrah was getting into poker as a pretty serious hobby. And she followed Phil on Twitter. She made some, some comment in response to a, a tweet of mine and uh, got a, a short response. And then kind of slowly over uh, many months, there was some Twitter banter back and forth um, until it uh, eventually led to uh, us meeting up. It may seem like someone like Phil Galfond, a young and wealthy jet-setting gambler, would naturally be dating a beautiful television star. But this particular generation of gamblers these online poker professionals, they aren't like that. Phil spends most of his time in front of a computer screen by himself. I'm pretty shy. I stay at home all the time. I, yeah, it was kind of a whirlwind. And especially, I mean, because Farrah's a beautiful actress. It was kind of a scary <laughs> for me, but it was obviously exciting as well. Their relationship was indeed a whirlwind. And Farrah who played poker herself, began traveling with Phil. I'd say that we fell in love like pretty quickly and we had only really hung out physically for about a week. Their relationship was indeed a whirlwind. And Farah, who played poker herself, began traveling with Phil. A couple of years later, they were married. It was around this time that I started also kind of losing confidence in my ability to make it long-term especially in online poker, because this is now the day and age of solvers. Solvers are powerful computer programs that can simulate so many decisions in a poker hand that it can tell you the correct game theory optimal or GTO strategy to play. When Phil started playing poker online in 2003, solvers didn't exist. Once top players were able to program computers to find these optimal plays, it took their games to new levels but it required a serious amount of time and study. I've never been much of a studier in poker or in school or anywhere else. And it seemed to me that way poker is heading does not play to my strengths. Phil found himself confronted with a new, younger generation who had learned to use these solvers and revolutionized the game in the process. Poker isn't something physical. It's something that you can use a computer to help with. That's Joe Stapleton a comedian and a popular TV poker host and commentator. It's something that you can use books and information sharing to help the game evolve. So the game 
has evolved at a ridiculously rapid pace. Even a short break from paying close attention put Phil behind the pack. Just like in 2007, when he and his friends were the wild upstarts taking the game away from the old cowboy road gamblers and country club golf hustlers, now Phil Galfon was part of the older generation. And he was only 30 years old. And just like that, about a decade into his professional poker career, Phil Galfon retired. And right on time, he and Farah had a baby. The first month after our son was born, was I was basically not doing anything other than uh, being a dad. Phil had transitioned from poker pro to poker coach to now expanding his company Run It Once into a real money poker site. It was incredibly ambitious. And he would be competing with massive online gambling companies with deep pockets and decades in the business. But like everything else in Phil's life, he believed in himself to an almost irrational degree. Before Run It Once Poker, we lived a lifestyle of being able to just do whatever we wanted whenever we wanted. And we would stay up till 8 a.m. binge watching a show if we wanted and sleep till 4 p.m. and or go play poker all night or, you know, or decide that we're going to go to Cabo the next day. And we just did whatever we wanted. Then he decided he was going to make a poker site and he went from Mr. Slide to Mr. Schedule. Phil's life changed dramatically. Even though he was building a poker business, he wasn't playing much poker at all. He wasn't a gambler anymore. He was a businessman. And he was fine with that. But something still gnawed at him. I noticed that uh, my training video views had been going down. I started to think, oh, I guess that makes sense because, you know, I haven't really been playing much. People are probably interested in learning from people that they see actively playing at the tables. Phil had made the decision to hang up his guns all on his own. He didn't get felted and go broke. He started a business and a family. When he was playing, he was good. Maybe even the best. Did anyone remember? Did any of these new poker whiz kids know about Phil Galfond? But more than all that, what really ate away at Phil was wondering whether or not he could still play. Could he do what he had done so many times before and build his bankroll and his skills up piece by piece? He couldn't shake the feeling, so he did something about it. In November of 2019, he issued a public challenge. He would lay a three-to-one side bet to any poker coach who could play him heads up at High Stakes Pot Limit Omaha for 25,000 hands and come out ahead. This is the golden child who dominated and then left the game for a while. To me, it was, this is a great comeback story. That's David Tuckman, host of the Under the Gun Poker podcast and World Series of Poker commentator for ESPN. We heard about his wife playing poker more than we heard about him playing. And he was just, you know, he was off running a business and he was a dad and had so many other things. Then, you know, every summer we would see him play a handful of events at the World Series. But this was the golden child coming back to see if he could do it, to see if he still had it. But Phil wasn't even sure if he still had it. He had wondered himself whether he was rusty. He had a lot of catching up to do. So he got some active players to teach him how to use solvers. So now there's a tool telling me the right way to play hands, but I need to figure out why 
because I can't possibly memorize how to play every hand perfectly. I need to understand the concepts behind it so that I can apply those to any situation that comes up. And the more I studied, the more I was excited because I I felt like my skill set still was important and still was valuable in the modern era of poker. Phil's first challenge was against a European high-stakes PLO player who went by the name of Vinny Vitti 1993. He preferred to keep his true identity a secret, and to this day, his real name is still widely unknown. The match would be 25,000 hands of 100-200 PLO, with Phil putting up 200,000 and Vinny putting up 100,000. Whoever finished ahead after 25,000 hands, even if they were only up a single dollar, would keep whatever they won during the match, plus the side bet. I asked Joey Ingram, a popular podcast host and an ambassador of what he likes to call the great game of pot limit Omaha, who he thought the people in the poker world were making the favorite between Phil and this anonymous European player. Uh, you know, I don't know. It's a good question, right? I, I kind of, I don't think people knew what to expect because they didn't really know Vinny Vitti. They were wondering why Phil would challenge one of the perceived top guys right away. Was there a lot of side action on the, on the challenge between people? Yeah, I'm pretty sure a lot of people made big side bets. I, there was a lot of chatter on, on social media. I also know people betting behind the scenes. So yeah, it seemed like there was a pretty good amount of money that was getting bet on the challenge. The players had agreed to play five days a week a minimum of four hours a day on two tables simultaneously. That was usually enough to play about five or 600 hands in a day. At that rate, with days off, they would play 25,000 hands in about four or five months. And all of it was broadcast live on Twitch. The fact that it was on a big stage, it was a lot more intense and draining than I thought it was going to be. And it was less fun than I thought it was going to be. As the match started, Phil had some small losses, but he still felt pretty good about how he was playing. For the first few sessions, I felt great, even though I was losing. The losses started to pile up on Phil. Session after session, he lost. Now, some of this was to be expected. PLO is a game with big swings. But after 7,000 hands, Phil was stuck 700,000 euros, or nearly $800,000. That's more than three times the side bet he had with Vinny Vitti. That's seven times what Phil was putting up. And there were still nearly 20,000 hands left to play. You know, at some point you have to think, well, maybe he knows something I don't, or, you know, maybe I'm wrong. (laughs) I'm out of practice. You know, at some point, money aside, just losing at a game again and again is really not fun. That's really depressing. And this kind of just felt like just getting beaten over the head day in, day out. I saw him sad on a few occasions, but he kept telling me not to worry, and like I felt helpless. He just told me to not worry. <laughs> he, he was telling me to not worry, and I was saying, okay, I trust you, you know, and I just trusted him. But around the 7,500th hand, Phil finally had a winning session. He won 80,000 euros. And then the very next session, I had my biggest loss, which was something like 280000 or 260000 So I went from having my biggest win, which was only 80000 to uh, my biggest loss, which was uh, over three times that. David Tuckman was doing on-air commentary during the session. It was akin to watching a bloody UFC fight, the kind of UFC fight where you really don't want to watch anymore. 
I mean, we watch UFC because we love watching people get the shit kicked out of them, right? But when it gets really ugly and somebody really starts to get hurt, that's when it almost becomes uncomfortable for us to watch. So in case you're keeping score, after about 10,000 hands, Phil was down 900,000 euros to Vinny Vitti, an ungodly amount. Before, Phil thought that he was risking 200,000 on a match that might end with one of them up or down maybe less than 100,000. But now he was looking at losing 200,000 plus the 900,000 euros he had already lost, plus whatever else he might lose over the next 15,000 hands. If these results kept up, it could be ruinous. The very first day, I think Phil went down 100 grand or something, 80 grand. I don't really remember, but I remember everyone saying, oh, that's not a big deal. Going down five buy-ins in Potlim and Omaha, anything can happen. Not a big deal. That's Joe Stapleton again. Phil had tapped Stapleton to provide commentary for the challenge on Run It Once's Twitch channel. And then he goes down four or five more buy-ins. And people are like, 10 buy-ins is really not that big of a deal when you're playing 50,000 hands. And then he goes down 15 buy-ins and people are like, actually, all right, you know what? This is turning into a bloodbath. I was like, well, if Phil even runs hotter than the sun and wins every all-in for the next two weeks, I don't see how he can do it. Joey Ingram posted a video to his YouTube channel after the session, and the response from the online peanut gallery was unkind. Everybody in the comment section's like, he's got no shot, he's washed up. There's people beacon on Twitter. There's people that are go on the forums, right? They're all talking about, like, this is a joke. What's going on here? What Phil needed was a break. According to the terms of the bet, if either player wanted to take a break, they would have to pay 3,000 euros a day to the other player. This was to keep players from walking away indefinitely while they were losing and stretching the challenge out rather than finish and have to pay up. So Phil ponied up the 3,000 euros and took a day off. And during that day, I contemplated quitting. So I started to type up the quitting post. And as I was writing it out and kind of conceding the match, I just really didn't want to quit. I was like everybody else. I just felt bad for him. And I was worried that he was embarrassed. And I, I just was sad for him. And it didn't help that I was like anxious from being cooped up with the baby and like apart from my family. So, um, but you know, Elliot Rowe, thankfully he was talking with Phil every single day before the sessions, after the sessions. Elliot Rowe is a mindset performance coach who works with a number of high stakes poker players, but he doesn't know fuck all about how to play pot limit Omaha. Then again, Bundini Brown didn't know anything about how to box. I use hypnotherapy to help them perform at their best in high-stakes situations. A lot of the work that we were doing over that period of time was disconnecting from the situation and instead just focusing on solving each hand as an individual puzzle and moving to the next one. So that really became the theme of the majority of the rest of the challenge. I was careful enough that I didn't just hop right back in, but I said, you know what, let me just take some time and think about this. So I decided to take pay the penalty 3000 a day, so pay 18000 to essentially take two and a half weeks and think this over and decide whether I want to continue or not. And obviously, that's a lot of money to pay just for <laughs> some time to think. But we're playing for such large stakes. It just seemed like the right decision. Phil spent the week playing heads up against friends, talking to Elliot Rowe, 
and rebuilding his confidence. Once he returned to the match, his attitude was that if he could just win some of the money he had already lost back, he could go lick his wounds and prepare for the next challenge. But still, he worried. If he came back and had a couple of big losses right away, he might end up right back where he was before the break. Snake bit and scared money. But fortunately, the very first session, I, I had my biggest win yet, which was 180000 Still not as big as his biggest wins, but um, double my previous biggest. And uh, it felt really good. Like, it took a lot of the pressure off. During the break, Phil had conversations with friends, fellow high-stakes poker players who he respected, looking for their advice. One in particular really made an impact. And he said, you know, before you studied solvers, you were a pretty good player. And you were making plays for a, a host of reasons, using logic and hand reading and all these other things. So just do what you think is the best play, what you would do. To and, trust your gut. Yeah, to trust your gut, exactly. And to stray from what you're quote unquote supposed to do um, and just play the way that, that you want to play because you think it's the best for whatever reason. So Phil started to trust his gut more. He got the boogeyman of the big bad solvers out of his mind. And soon enough, he started winning. He had a couple small wins here and there, but I really was winning the overwhelming majority of the sessions. And as we approached like 16,000, 15,000, 16,000 hands in of the 25,000 hand challenge, I, was, I had kind of cut the deficit in half and I was down you know, 400, 450,000. And that was actually, it's funny because up until that point, I almost felt like I was free rolling. Like I had almost just quit and lost 1.1 million. And I was just happy with any kind of finish that was better than down 1.1 million. He knew that he wasn't the best heads up PLO player anymore, but he's like me, he's a dreamer. So like the comeback would have been just like this incredible story. And he was dreaming of that. Poker players like to think of themselves as a rational bunch. They train themselves to think like machines, to be unemotional, to trust the math, to not buy into things like streaks or luck or momentum. Phil is still down more than 400,000 euros more than halfway through the match. Why would he have any reason to believe he can win? Well, for one thing, Vinny Vitti was now having to play in a tougher emotional spot. And emotions actually do matter in poker. When a player makes emotional decisions rather than rational ones, they call it going on tilt. And the best players like to believe they're above it. But the truth is, nobody is immune from tilting. Not even the top players in the world. And now that the tables were turning in the match, Phil was no longer tilting. And Vinny seemed to be. I can definitely tell when he's not playing as well as he normally did and can kind of see sometimes some similar mistakes where he's now getting scared that I'm going to have a big hand or he gives up on a bluff that he would normally make because he just thinks I'm going to read him correctly, things like that. For the first time in the challenge, Phil felt the wind at his back. He was actually having fun. Another pot for Galfon. Booyah, double up oh. Phil Galfon, more or less. Uh. Phil now up six buy-ins today. Phil kept winning. And he went from thinking, wow, I've redeemed myself. I can get out of this without mortgaging my home. To being in a position to do the impossible. With mere days to go in the challenge, he had a shot 
at actually winning. Another three bet set pot. the trap. Wow. Phil calls. Phil's calls. got top two pair. Phil holds. Phil holds. He's destroying it right now. <laughs> On the river. Another buy-in for Phil. It's been haymaker after haymaker for the last 40 minutes or so. We entered the final day. Uh, I think I was down 18,000, which is essentially nothing. Going into the final day of the challenge, it was truly a toss-up. An incredible turn of events all on its own. Everyone was talking about how this was a fairy tale, a storybook ending. But the thing is, it wasn't over yet. And in order to complete the fairy tale, Phil still had to win. And it was so close. Sure, if Phil ended up losing by a couple thousand and loses the side bet, he'd still be able to walk away with his head held high, right? But that wouldn't be enough. That's not how storybooks end. It was just the craziest thing. I'm like, there's no way this guy's going to lose. I don't know what's happening here. I'm going to bet on Phil, right? I'm going to bet on the hot guy, the guy that's up the $900,000. So I was betting on Phil. I'll put it like that. I'm like, he loses here. Then I just don't see it happening. Galfond actually put out a tweet himself where he had to be like, listen, guys, this is not actually a movie. It's not actually a script. <laughs> I'm still a favorite to lose this. Just so you guys know. That's David Tuckman again. It almost became a foregone conclusion that he was going to win. And there was a pivotal session, you know, a few sessions before actually the end of it all, where he went green. And, you know, I was just like, Galfond is green. Galfond is in the green. I just couldn't believe it. But I could, because like I said, we all kind of expected it. It was just like, wait, this is going to happen. I went through a bunch of math on the day prior to the final day to see like, okay, if, if I'm at this point with this many hands left, basically like I looked at all of the points where you could technically fold to a victory. Folding to victory is essentially the poker equivalent of the quarterback taking a knee to end the game. It means that you fold every hand once you are winning more money than you would lose by folding them. Remember, they're playing 100, 200 blinds. So you're losing 300 euros every two hands by folding every time. So Phil and Vinny Vitti took a short break to do some math and figure out if it was fold the victory time or not. And 22,000 people watching on Twitch waited with bated breath. Who could have possibly thought heading into today, we were talking about this match maybe being over the last session. 609 hands played today. Just absolutely insane how hard both these guys are fighting. Phil pots it on this Jack 972 diamond board. Venny folds. Galfon's deficit now below 4,500. Going into those last hundred hands, I mean, it's the most intense day of poker that I've ever played by far. I've played World Series of Poker final tables and uh, played for significantly higher stakes than this, but nothing felt this intense. And I think it's because it was the culmination of, you know, several months of my life playing this match. And it was all going to come down to an hour. After months and months of poker, over the course of 39 sessions and over 24,000 hands and a roller coaster of emotions, it all came down to the final hundred hands. It was like two boxers entering the ring for the 12th round. Neither sure who was ahead on the scorecards. Both needing to win that last round to win the fight. Then he's turned to pot it now. Every single pot is huge. 
relative to where we need to get for this match to be mathematically over. And so the the final hundred hands, there were so many spots where he only had to win a little bit more and he was going to win the whole match. Like I was, I was on the ropes for a lot of the last few hundred hands and just kept chipping away. And I, and I did manage to win a lot of uncontested pots and kind of chip away at his lead, chip away at his lead. And then at, at some point get a bit of a lead myself even. And then there was a hand I played where I think I had queen 10, 10, eight uh, with diamonds on jack nine X with two diamonds. Pot size bet from Phil, single raise pot, jack nine, four, two diamonds. And he check called. Then he calls. Oh boy, here we go, kids. Four diamonds on the turn, board pairs and the flush draw hits. And I turned to flush, queen high flush, I think. And I, I decided to bet half pot, which basically, like at this point, hand values are so strange because he has to play really tight when I'm starting to put a lot of pressure on him. So the hands I can value bet get more narrow. Phil has a queen high flush with two tens in his hand. He's bet half the pot. There's a pair of fours on the board, and Vinny could have a full house, not to mention a better flush. But Phil's hand is good, but not great. It's not so bad you want to bet nothing, but not so good you want to play a huge pot. Joey Ingram joined the live broadcast, and he speculated on what the players might have. Yeah, both players are going to have full houses here in their ranges. They're going to have flushes in their range, so not necessarily that favorable to one player. So I decided to bet half pot on the turn and not put any more money into the pot to try to just get that half pot of value and kind of end the hand there. Half pot bet from Phil. Every hand is just so huge. Bears Phil more. He's going to have more full houses and more nut flushes. And, uh, you know, figure that when he puts that that money in, I'm actually like maybe only 50, 55% to have the best hand. But I thought that was the best way to get the right amount of money into the pot. The best kind of risk reward scenario. And I actually also had, I had a straight flush draw. And with the two tens, I had a, a full house draw as well. So there are four river cards on which I am going to put more money in. But every other river, I'm just going to check back. There's a call from Venny. Lots of money in the middle right now. The biggest pot we've seen for some time. Tennis spades on the river. The river card is a 10, a miracle card, giving Phil tens full of fours, a full house. The only hands that beat him now are two jacks or two fours both of which are possible, but unlikely. It changed the hand from one where Phil had a difficult decision to one where he was almost sure to win the pot. Here we go. It's been checked to Phil. The question on his mind was no longer, is my flesh any good? The question was, is this pot big enough to end this goddamn thing right here and now? Well, this could be it. This could be it. He checked, of course, and uh, that was one of my four cards, so... I bet pot. Phil pots it. Wow. And actually, I didn't know where we were exactly and what would happen if he folded, what would happen if he called. I knew if he folded that uh, I wouldn't have clinched the victory, but I didn't know what would happen if he called. A call here will put Phil within inches of the win if Phil takes the pot down. And so while he was thinking, I was like trying to do the math to figure out, you know, how much if he called, I would be up because I need to know right away because if I need to fold to victory, I need to fold the next hand, which is dealt immediately. He calls. There's the call. Oh! Bill's got... Oh! oh my God. Vinny called and showed 9-4, which means that on the turn when Phil bet his flush, he was losing to a full house. 
Rivers the full house. Ten's full. In fact, if Phil didn't hit that ten on the river, he would have lost. Yeah, and like my papa used to say, if a frog had wings, he wouldn't bump his ass on the ground. There was no time to marvel at what the poker gods had delivered unto Phil. The next hand was already dealt, and Vinny immediately raised. That might have been the final hand. Phil is folded and sitting out. He's done Whoa! it. It is over. I folded. I sat out and got a tally of exactly where we stood and realized at that point that I could fold to victory with a margin of like 1,500 euro or something. And so um, I asked him, you know, if he wanted to play it out or just end it there. And he said, let's just play it out. And so I folded the rest of my hands and managed to win by... I think the final was like 1,600. It's yeah, over. Baby. It's got, yeah, it's baby. over. He won 12,571. It's over. It was over. It is over. Phil Galfon has done it. To the outsider, the gambler's world may seem beset with magic. So much riding on the throw of a die or the turn of a card. So much dependent on the unseen forces of fate and fortune. But the truth is, Many gamblers don't believe in fate at all. Many gamblers are humans who've trained their minds to work like machines. Where you or I see the invisible hand of fate, they see only probability, numbers, math. They win because they understand the mechanics behind the way the world works. They see the man behind the curtain. They know when they have the best of it and when they need to fold. Do I believe that there's a mystical force of fate that caused that to happen? No. But do I believe that Phil's work ethic played a part? Yes. Do I believe that Phil's refusal to give up brings us close to that storybook ending? Yes. To his decision-making, the audience, the what he had for breakfast that day, the sleep he got the night before, his, his life coaching that he gets, the support of his wife, the support of the fans, the support, the fact he knows he's putting on a good show. Do I think all of that contributes in some minuscule way? Yes. I just don't think it's fate. I think it's just math. Um, I mean, I think that the dynamics changed. I think that edges shifted. But I think that what played out was extremely improbable. But I believe it was just math. There's no destiny. There's no fate. No destiny. Yeah. Guys like Phil Galfond or Joe Stapleton, they talk about all these things these unforeseen factors that bear upon the moment, that push history in one way or the other, and they refuse to call them fate, refuse to think of them as anything extraordinary. But you can call it math, or you can call it magic. The thing is, we know something special when we see it. Math doesn't make us cheer. It doesn't make us cry. I mean, maybe it does. Maybe that's what's really going on, somewhere in the folds of space and time. But life needs more than math. And every fairy tale needs a fitting ending. Second, it's over! It's over! Cleveland is a city of champions once again! The Cavaliers are NBA champions! He's in! Patriots win the Super Bowl! It is over! Phil is comes back, rises from the ashes, was dead. People said he was washed out. They said he was done. They said he should retire. He came back from being down 900,000 euros and wins it at the zero hour here on Easter Sunday. Oh my God. 
Next time on the season one finale of Gamblers, we'll meet the bookie who switched sides, Joey Fortuna. Basically, they said, and I still have the text, uh, you're too good of a better, um, and we can't we can't accept that action anymore. And, and that was pretty much that. So it's 10,000 if you lose, and it's nothing if you win at all. Gamblers was written and reported by me, David Hill. The show was produced by Craig Horlbeck, Noah Malale, and Isaac Lee. Matt Dollinger was our story editor. The sound design was done by Isaac Lee. 